Welcome to the Tournament of Everything, a bracket-style show where we compare everything on Wikipedia against probably everything else on Wikipedia. That's right, and we do so by taking each and everything, cooking it down, scraping out the remaining bits, and turning that into a gravy, throwing that over some fries and cheese curds, and which one of those will turn into the most delicious poutine imaginable? Well, we'll choose that, and we'll be pooting that into the Victor's Circle uh, here in the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. No Canadians were harmed in the making of this intro but some appetites may have been. I just don't like poutine. Yeah, and small towns in Iran and moths don't really make the best gravy fixings. So, you know, I tell you what, why don't we just pick some random articles off of Wikipedia, pit them off against one another, and uh, choose victors from there. I think that's a much more reasonable idea. I have my handy-dandy Wikipedia link generator ready to go exceptional then let us waste no time jumping in to round one in round one we have heliopsis lanceolata against allison woolard Yes, we do. And what a way to start. We have a South American flowering plant versus uh, something that I'm sure uh, bloomed successfully throughout their life. Allison Woodward, a biologist, no stranger to flowering plants. Let's jump in and see who will emerge victorious. Heliopsis lanceolata is a rare South African species of flowering plant in the family Asteraceae. It is found only in Colombia. It, H. canskins, and H. ducumbens are the only three species of their genus endemic to South America. All the other species are indigenous to North America. Now, there is one that's found on both continents known as H. Buchthelmoides. Um, that's a sequence of consonants you don't frequently see, but you may or may not frequently see that species of plant. Uh, that is not included here in the article, nor is any further information regarding this competitor. Now, another thing not found on either one of those continents is Alison Woolard, the British biologist. She's a lecturer in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Oxford, where she is also a fellow of Hertford College in Oxford. And for those that don't know, Oxford is in London. It is, and it is full of oxen, if I am assuming correctly. Now, Woolard was born in 1968 in Kingston-upon-Thames, which is a great name for a town, and she was educated at the University of London, gaining her undergraduate degree in biological sciences in the year 1991. She gained her doctorate of philosophy at the University of Oxford, uh, and now I'm looking at it, fewer oxes than originally thought. But she got her degree on fission yeast, uh, supervised by Paul Nurse in the year 1995. What a great way to make bread. And also, correction, Oxford is found in, you guessed it, Oxford, apparently. That's a town. <laughs> Look at that. Lots. We don't know anything about Oxford, but it's not what we're talking about in this round. And so that is going to be our uh, escape from embarrassment. Uh, looks like this Allison Woodward, though, no embarrassment at all. She moved to the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, no moles included, in Cambridge. Rob, that's in actually Cambridge in 1995. And her research focuses on developmental biology of the nematode model organism. Nematodes are kind of gross. Uh, nematodes, roundworms, they're parasitic things. Also, she won some awards. She's been on the radio. Fission yeast is apparently the same yeast used in traditional brewing, so it's probably everyone's favorite yeast. And if you don't like it, get to know it a little bit, and you might like it more. There's just so much more to say about her than there is to say about Heliopsis lanceolata. Yes, there is. Um if only for the fact that uh, we're only able to include what is already included in these articles. Uh, looking at Heliopsis lanceolata, it 
seems like it's probably a dark horse. You know, there's probably more to be seen. But uh, seeing a little bit more out of this uh, Allison Woodward article, I can see that she is currently the academic champion. That's an official title for public engagement with research at the University of Oxford, a post which she has held since 2017. She's a champion of academics, and I'm feeling like she's going to be the champion of this round of the ultimate tournament of everything. I think there's no way I can disagree with you because if this flower is so great, why don't they include a picture? It's just words. You have the internet. You could include a photo, but you didn't because it was probably like, oh, should we take a picture of that? No, it's not that interesting. No, but what truly is interesting is who they'll uh, this Allison Woodward m- may be encountering in round two, the ultimate round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Well, let's jump right in then, shall we? Uh, yeah, well, round two. Now, the the capital round two is going to happen at an undetermined time in the future. Uh, once we finish with round one, there's a lot of, you know, infinity is a big number. Uh, it's bigger than four. It's bigger than six. Uh, it's even bigger than two. But speaking of two, let's get in to round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have Aubreyville against Clash of Egos. Ah, indeed. A Clash of Titans, if you will. We've got a uh, commune in the Muse Department in, uh, looks like, northeastern France versus a film, yes, a Danish comedy film directed by Thomas Willem Jensen and written by Anders Thomas Jensen. I wonder if those two with the last names had a clash of egos, thus uh, sparking the impetus, if you will, for this film. We may or may not find out about that. Let's find out about these contestants. Now I have a French pronunciation here. I'm going to click on it and see if it'll speak it to me. It won't. It apparently is just giving me more letters with little dots and squigglies over them that I don't understand. Thanks, French. Now, the population of Aubreyville started at 867 when it was first recorded in 1793 and currently sits somewhere around 391. So it's a town that doesn't really seem like it's on the up and up. That is about all we know. Well, we know that. Uh, We can see that the population has fluctuated with a peak population of, uh, looks like, 1,054 in the year of 1831. But, yeah, it has gone downhill from there. Don't know why, don't know how, but that seems to be, from all uh, reports before me, the case. Now, we do have a picture of the town hall in Auberville. Looks like a fairly nice building, Um, a classy chateau of sorts. And they also have a coat of arms. Um, you definitely want to have arms on your coat. Otherwise, your your biceps and your, your elbows will get cold. Yeah, it's more of a more of an apron at that point, I think. Maybe a vest, I guess, would also be appropriate. I don't know why I thought apron. Those don't have arms or a back. No, they don't. Uh, but, you know, if we're going to talk about vests, let's talk about the uh, investment that was made in our other contestant, the Clash of Egos. Uh, we don't have a whole lot about how much it costs to make or any of that, but we do have a plot summary here. Stars Ulrich Thompson as Tony, an aggressive husband and father so rage-addled that he got sent to jail for knocking out a man in public. Yeah, that's definitely not good. You don't want to do that. Tony's wife grew humiliated and promptly divorced him, but Tony luckily managed to swing occasional custody of his two children. On one of their prized afternoons together, Tony and the kids harken off to see the new Harry Potter movie, but run headfirst into the discouraging news that the film is sold out and magic isn't real. With only one other option available to them at the cinema, the three must endure a thoroughly miserable afternoon at an uber-pretentious experimental Danish film called The Murderer. 
Yes, this uh, frustrated Tony, who then smashed a display case in the cinema lobby, barely managing to escape incarceration for this, leads him to lose that custodial uh, session with his children. So far, this movie is just going great. Hence, he decides to track Volter down for a refund of the cost for seeing the film, finding him in a film set, shooting final film of the trilogy. Um, of which trilogy here? Uh because there were more than three Harry Potter movies, weren't there? there no, was I, like... think, I think they're talking about The Murderer. Oh. I think it might be a, a, okay. a two, part two of three, perhaps. Well, that would make it a serial murderer. Yeah, perhaps. Now, Volter pushes Tom in a frantic response and lands on a litigation. The person who wrote this must have been Dutch, I think, <laughs> if I had to guess. But that's okay. Listen, I'm bad at writing English, and it's the only language I know how to write. Uh, so... Tom only asks for his money spent for seeing Volter's early film and wants to be a co-writer and co-director of his new film. Yes, that's all I'm asking for. All I'm asking for is my money back and also let me write and direct your next film. Volter finds this disrupting his artistic expression but compromises for his producer. This makes no sense to me. Okay, reading through it, what I think is this really angry dude who has a propensity for punching things uh, decided to go and punch this other guy, uh, and eventually he was unable to make the movie uh, in the way that he had originally wanted to, but ultimately the critics loved it, and he made so much money that he ended up giving him the uh, – ticket price for the film that he went to live or went to watch and then he goes on to lead a quiet life you know foreign films are definitely an interesting thing um they're probably worth watching it looks like this has high quality but that is certainly an interesting plot form yeah so apparently they made the movie bad on purpose because one guy's like i'm gonna make it terrible to spite you and then it's the best movie he's ever made what does that tell you about your talents if you're like i'm gonna be really bad at this and people are like oh you're trying today that's nice <laughs> it's kind of like guy. that producers you, you, you yeah. know the producers have you made that a few times yeah, i tried yeah. to make something terrible and it turned out being absolutely awesome you know you never know what you're gonna get looks like he got a lot of butts and seats probably more than the 391 butts available in Aubreville in France yeah I think if I had to pick do I want to see this movie or do I want to Venice visit Aubreville the movie has my morbid curiosity not because I think it'll be good because I think it won't be and that's kind of why I want to see it Ooh, I'm kind of leaning the other way. I mean, I'd rather go to France than to go see some Dutch film that we've already read the plot to. We know how it ends. You've convinced me. All right. So, Aubreville, the commune in northeastern France. You're going to move moving on to the next round of the ultimate everything. I cared about that movie so much. I wanted to watch it right up until I didn't. Yeah, it sounds like it's not the movie that the uh, character in the film even wanted to make. I'd like to see now if they make that, that would be an interesting, is that fan fiction at that point where if we get this, the Snyder, it's kind of a reverse Snyder cut, what he really wanted to make the film in the film, but he won't be able to do it because he couldn't even make it to the next round. But speaking of the next round, let's get into round three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have Urkuai against John Laughlin, the political scientist. Ah, this is going to be a very, very tasty round of competition, I can see, because Urkuai is a type of rice cake, particular to the Yunnan province of southwest China, and John Laughlin, political scientist, um... Yeah, I, I don't know if he's got a particular flavor, but that is exactly why we've got to dive into these articles. So let's see if that information is included. Urkawi, E-R-K-U-A-I, means earpiece, type of rice cake from the Yunnan province, referencing the shape of one of its common forms, often served stir-fried with vegetables and mala sauce, which is a mixture of dried red chilies, Sichuan pepper, and salt. And this sounds delicious. Yeah, watch out. It's hot, but 
also spicy. It's sold as the popular street food, uh, also known as shao or koi, uh, grilled and rolled onto a yutiao, a strip of fried dough, that is, with sweet or savory condiments added. It makes a nice rolled up snack, which slightly resembles a Mexican burrito. The sweet type contains a sweet brown sauce and peanuts, while the savory type is spread with luffy and bean sprouts and various other toppings. It is particularly popular in the tourist area of Dali. Now, it's got a, you know, Urkuai. It's a particular name. It's led to it being called one of the 18 oddities in Yunnan. I'd be interested to learn what the 17 others are. I'm sure they are equally interesting and or delicious. And speaking of, let's check out our other competitor, John Laughlin. Uh, he may be interesting. He may be delicious. We don't know either of those yet. Let's learn a little more about him. John Laughlin, born 1948, is a British-based academic and educator from Northern Ireland and a noted specialist in European territorial politics, which makes sense given where he's from. After being educated at St. Malachi's College, he spent several years as a Cistercian monk at Our Lady of Bethlehem Abbey, Portalone, Northern Ireland, where he carried out the usual studies for the priesthood in philosophy, theology, and biblical studies. He is currently a fellow at Blackfriars Oxford, an emeritus fellow and former tutor at St. Edmund's College, where he was also director of the Von Hugel Institute. Institute, and a senior fellow and affiliated lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Studies, both at the University of Cambridge. Uh, where is that place again? Cambridge? Probably in Cambridge. I think you're right. He was previously professor of politics at Cardiff University, where he remains an emeritus professor. He received his doctorate in 1987 at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, for a thesis Regionalism and Ethnic Nationalism in France, a case study of Corsica. He has many awards, many books, other memberships, some publications. It seems like this man has done nearly everything related to political science. It does look like he's pretty involved, pretty influential, and pretty successful. But is he as desirable as a type of rice cake? The answer is no. No. Yeah, I, I think it's the sauce that's uh, that's pulling me. You know what? What did we say here? A, a mixture of red chili, Szechuan pepper, and salt. It's my mouth has been watering since you uttered those words. Uh, yeah, and also resembling a burrito. Golly, I love it. I don't see anything about John Laughlin that resembles a burrito. Oh, that's a good thing because he's a man. Well, hey, uh, there have been, you know, people. You can make a burrito out of just about anything. Okay, you know? I think we're picking our winner, don't you? That street yep, from China. With a nice China. bottle of Chianti, we're moving Eric Huai on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Let's get into round four before anybody asks me about a basket. Ah, my round four is ready. In round four, we have Azri Iskandar against the 2008 and 9 Bear 04 Leverkusen season. Ah, don't know what that season was. We're going to rectify that very shortly. And Azri Iskandar, uh, a Malaysian actor. Okay, yes. So we've got two things ready to hit the stage. Let's see which one's going to be adequately prepared for opening night. Azri Iskandar, born 1968, is a Malaysian actor who has worked in the Malaysian film industry since the 1990s. He's starred in such great films as I Am Alone, Paturi and Puan 2, Sayatan, KL Vampires, and Matt Bond Malaya. Uh, but don't forget his television appearances, beginning in 2005 with Maniti Bara and proceeding all the way up to our present year of 2002 with Kuwasa and Ara Apa Denga Saka. 
Now, don't forget, TV and movies are just one thing, but the telemovie is something other entirely, and he's been in a couple of those as well, such as the one like Kiam or Tana Kabur or Menkari Muhammad. Yes, so this guy can really do it all. Any uh, medium of acting that you need, especially if you happen to be in Malaysia while doing so, this guy is your guy. He looks like they... What other information do we have here? Not much. 53 to 54 years old, born in looks like Kuala Lumpur, which I'm going to tell you the truth. I didn't exactly know that that was in Malaysia, but I do now. And he has five children. Five children, two ex-wives, and probably not a lot of money left. Well, let's see if that's enough to beat his other contestant here. The 2008 to 9 Bayer 04 Leverkusen season. Now, this is, of course, the season of what looks like a soccer league. They dropped further down the table to finish ninth, failing to qualify for European competition for the second consecutive year. Manager Bruno Labadia left at the end of the season for Hamburg and was replaced by erstwhile Bayern Munich caretaker Jupp Hankies. Definitely, we're assuming that it's soccer here. Um They've got a first-team squad consisting of a bunch of international players. They've also got a number of individuals that left the club during the season. Not everyone can make the cut, um, but it doesn't sound like they were that successful. It is about all we know. Yeah, they were apparently not very good for a long time, and someone that sounds like they've been pretty good for a while is their competitor, Osri Skandar. I'm going to have to absolutely agree with you. I've never heard of any of these films, but uh, if you're into film, TV, or telefilm, it seems like this might be an individual who you might want to spend some time with their filmography. Check it out, turn the subtitles on, or take it as an opportunity to learn a new language. And we may just get a chance to do that when they appear in the inevitable round two, for they are victorious in this... The ultimate Good luck next season, German soccer players. Good luck. Yeah, I'd like to see a dramatic film acted by Osri Iskandar of, you know, somebody struggling to be on that. Kind of a, a hard knocks of sorts. Um, it, it may be interesting. It's kind of just flipping the script on everything. Yeah, might be good. Might also be terrible. Ah, uh, just like our next round, round five. Round five. Round five. In round five, we have Loud and Clear, the OC Supertones album, against Sebastus Diconis. Okay, this is nothing but rock and roll here. We've got an album, the fourth studio album, released by the OC Supertones, uh, featuring Toby Mac on the song What It Comes To, versus Sebastius Diaconis, the Deacon Rockfish. How about that? It's a marine species, ray-finned fish. Let's learn all about both of these and see which one's going to be able to rock the night away into round two. Now, the OC Supertones rock, but they do not roll. They would be the Christian ska band from Orange County, California. So their rock and roll might be different than Mick Jagger's. This is their fourth studio album that includes the song What It Comes To. This is also the first album that included guitarist Ethan Luck. Although Luck was not pictured, he is listed under additional musicians in the credits, as he did not officially join the band until after the album was finished. Yeah, they had to make room and then, well, they made room and had to fill it with uh, that luck guy. He got lucky because drummer Jason Carson left the band after the release of the album to take a position in youth ministry, it appears, though he did return in 2010 after their hiatus musically. This album integrates scratching and hip-hop vocal delivery with their brand of ska, uh, as well as their... Christian religious, uh, you know, concept at core. The songwriting was handled primarily by Morganski and Terusa and was considered more advanced than on their previous albums. 
Ska is some of my favorite music, and I did not know that Christian Ska was a thing, so thank you, Wikipedia. I now have something to add to my Apple playlist. Indeed. Uh, and if you do add this uh, album, you'll find themes throughout their songs ranging from apologetics to doubting God, but still contain elements of praise and worship and pop culture. Uh, ska is definitely an interesting way to go about it. I'm all for it. Um, yeah, they've got track listings here. Sounds like a good time. It sounds like a good time, but it does not sound like a fish. Sebastus diaconus, the deacon rockfish, its competitor is a species of marine ray finned fish belonging to the family Sebastinae, the rockfishes, part of the family Scorpidinae. Apparently, those are also fishes found in the eastern Pacific Ocean. Doesn't a deacon rockfish sound like the exact fish that might start a, ska, a Christian ska band? It actually sounds like a member of the band. Hey, I'm Deacon Rockfish. I play the guitar. <laughs> no, he'd play the bass. Uh, but either way, this is a pretty sweet fish. Uh, it's got fins. It's got gills. It's got eyes and a mouth, just as do most fish. Uh, now, this was discovered. There's a story to it here. Between 2002 and 2004, phylogeographic research on blue rockfish identified a distinct genetic subpopulation, which was sampled, as I'm sure ska music is frequently done to, uh, between Cape Mendocino in Northern California and Nia Bay, Washington. And subsequent research identified further genetic evidence supporting this as a distinct subpopulation. The Deacon rockfish has been described as a cryptic species that is difficult to distinguish from the blue rockfish. The Deacon rockfish, however, has more visible stripes in its color, whereas the blue rockfish is kind of blotchy. As such, prior to the formal classification of the species, the Deacon rockfish was referred to as the blue-sided rockfish, and the blue rockfish was referred to as the blue-blotched rockfish, because remember, we're really great at naming animals. We are indeed, and we're really great at getting fortuitous combinations of competitors here. For let's take a look at the etymology here. We've got the specific epithet, uh, diaconus, uh, deacon, if you will, and it refers to an quote unquote acolyte, which is a reference to the specific epithet of the blue rockfish, mystinus, which means priest in Latin. Like the uh, two species, an acolyte and priest are similar in appearance because uh, they're either both fish or both wearing robes. Yeah, that's how you can tell it. <laughs> a priest and a rockfish apart. One is wearing a robe. <laughs> Other than that, they're identical. Deacon rockfish are caught both commercially and recreationally in Oregon. In 2017, the stock assessment for Oregon and California combined deacon rockfish and blue rockfish for management purposes. The stock assessment estimated the combined populations to have declined rapidly in the 70s and 80s to a low point in 1995 and then increased to a point to the management target. Now, this is interesting. Rockfish were on their way down as ska was on its way up. It was indeed. Well, perhaps some of these fish were busy playing in rock bands who knows um speaking of rock though i mean we've just got we've got two absolutely intertwined elements of the infinite here competing battling off against one another this is one of the most balanced rounds that i think we've had yet um rob which way are you leaning well i think there's only one way to decide you leave it up to the lord and pick a number from the universe hmm does that number happen to be fish? Because I like this fish. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> how, how, how do I pick fish as a number? Is that five? What number <laughs> is fish? I guess if you put two fives together and mirror them, that's a fish, right? Yeah. It's like a fish. The fish wins, okay? While you think about that, congratulations, fish. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Oh, I think that really rocked. I, I loved that. And I'm not even fishing for compliments, nor is our victor in that round. Uh, but, oh, my goodness, I can't wait to move on to the next round, round seven. Making a turn around to ask Kirby. Comedy comes around the last second. There you have it. There is your winner, round six. 
We will Which get there, course- Mike. We will get there, but we're going to go to round six first. Our Let's two competitors, uh- the list of honorary fellows of Pembroke College in Cambridge against Handlebars, the song. Oh, that's so great. Uh, I really am a big fan of lists of honorary fellows of Pembroke College in Cambridge. Uh, where is Cambridge, by the way, Rob? Oh, uh, Cambridge. Ah, yes, that's what I, I what I thought. I've been told otherwise. But also, Handlebars, the song, I happen to know it, and I can ride a bike without it. Let's see which one of these we're not going to be able to move on without and dig into the articles presently. Now, as a reminder, we can only look at the article we have given. We cannot link to other articles it mentions. So this is literally just a list of people, starting with Charles Freer Andrews and going all the way to Sir Alan Ward. There are other people in the middle, like Emma Johnson, Sir John Kingsman, Sir Stephen Nichol, and even Gerald O'Collins. Uh, but don't forget George Maxwell Richards, Jim Pryor, the Baron Pryor, Chris Smith, and Sir John Chilcott. I'd like to tell you more about them, but it literally would just be other names, so instead I'm going to tell you about Handlebars, the song by the Flowbots. It was released as the first single from their debut album, Fight With Tools, which is not advice I recommend and is the group's largest success, peaking at number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 3 on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. Yeah, I know this song. It's a good tune. Um, I I like this song, actually. It was originally released in 2005 on the, brand's, the band's first EP, Flowbots Present Platypus, before being re-released on Flight with Tools two years later with a re-recorded vocal. The song won in a fan-voted local radio station contest at the end of 2007, giving the song a chance to be played upon the station. And it was so popular that it was put into full rotation at that station, and by the end of January had attracted the attention of record companies, ultimately signing with Universal Republic off the back of the single's success. Now, success is not without some controversy, because in May of 2019, Flobot sued YouTube user Logan Paul for copyright infringement over his single, No Handlebars. The group has requested all royalties for the song, which earned Paul over $1 million since 2017. That Logan Paul guy, I hear a lot about him, and I just don't like him. I don't don't know any... Oh, he's that guy that's boxing and stuff now, right? Yeah. Even though he can beat me up, I still don't like him. Well, he can apparently also, if not ride a bike with no handlebars, he can write a song ripped off of a song that can. Uh, The theme of this is it's really this song is about the idea that, quote, we have so much incredible potential as human beings to be destructive or to be creative. End quote. Uh, Oh, new quote. And it's tragic to me that the appetite for military innovation is endless. But when it comes to taking on a project like ending world hunger, it seems outlandish and it's not treated with the same seriousness that goes on from there. But I think you get it. Uh, Basically, the song is it's about, you know, our choice to we can do anything we want. We can change the world. But are we gonna? That's up to you. Yeah, it's a great song. If you haven't listened to it, you should either pause right now and go find it or better yet wait till we're done and then go find it again but i think i have a winner yes and i think that that winner is definitely going to be on the list of winners but not the list of honorary fellows of pembroke college cambridge uh handlebars the song you can ride a bike with no handlebars and you what you can you can I can't remember any of the other words, but that's not required here, for you are moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. I am just increasing my Apple playlist here as we go. Yeah, it's a good track. It definitely deserves a, a replay. Um... I'm trying now. I've just got it like stuck in my head, but the only words that I can remember are I can ride a bike with no handlebars. That's why I've probably said it six or seven times. And speaking of seven, let's get on actually this time to round seven. Round seven. Round seven. Round seven. In round seven, we have 
Evan Moore against Tverga. Ooh, we have Evan Moore, a former American football tight end in the National Football League versus Tverga Municipality in the Autonomous Commune of the Principality of Astruyas in Spain. Uh, let's see which one of these is going to have more than the other and move on to the next round. Evan James Moore was signed by the Green Bay Packers as an undrafted free agent in 2008 out of Stanford. He played college football and college basketball while there. He is currently a college football analyst and no longer playing in the NFL. He attended Bria Olinda High School in Orange County, California, and was an All-American in both football and basketball. He led his basketball team with 24.5 points per game and his football team with 13 touchdowns his senior year and was even named Orange County Athlete of the Year. Other notable recipients of that particular award include Tony Gonzalez and Deshaun Foster. Uh, his high school career propelled him into a position to play both football and basketball on a full scholarship at Stanford. Pretty good school. While there, he was the starting wide receiver for three years, having a breakout sophomore season, leading his team in touchdown receptions. And the following year, though, he suffered a serious injury, a dislocated hip, which sidelined him for the entire season. He was able to receive a medical redshirt for his junior season and uh, ultimately received his bachelor's degree in political science and a master's degree in business and organizational behavior. He played for four teams in the NFL, the Green Bay Packers, the Cleveland Browns, Ooh. the Seattle Seahawks, and the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know if he played any actual... Oh, yeah, looks like he played games for Cleveland. Seattle and Philadelphia, but he never got to take the field at Lambeau. Yeah, but I'm thinking that the details on ah, I see here. He was undrafted in the 2008 NFL draft. Uh, he was first signed with the Saints, then was cut, and then on May 22nd, more signed with the Green Bay Packers, where he was placed on the injured reserve list after sustaining a knee injury in a game game against the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, did he have much playtime or success? Looks like most of that came with the Cleveland Browns. He scored five touchdowns with Cleveland and had 50 receptions over a two-season career. He currently, oh well, with, with the Browns at least. So three, three with the Browns. There you go. Cleveland, sorry. Sorry, Cleveland. You're not Detroit. Cleveland? Nope. Cleveland rocks, if Drew Carey has taught me anything. And it seems like this guy was pretty okay. Yeah. Sounds like he's pretty okay. Now, what else might also be pretty okay is its competitor, which I entirely forgot about, Taberga or Taverga, a mining area. Now its economy is based on agriculture and emerging tourism. Tourism based on the area's beauty and historical interest. The peak, Sobia, is distinguished by its impressive vertical walls of limestone and its flat top in the Collegiate Church of San Pedro in a high medieval style. Dates from between 1069 and 1076. Those are old numbers. One can even explore the mountains and the 12-kilometer-long Huerta Cave, the Senda del Oso bicycle path, or a museum of prehistory. That sounds lovely, uh, and so lovely, in fact, that in 2013, Taverga, or Taberga, was prized with the Exemplary Town of Austrias Award of the Prince Austrianus Award. Uh, because of this recognition, Felipe, Prince of Austria, or Asturias, actually, my apologies, visited the town in October of 2013. This town sounds lovely, and... What will seal the deal for me? They have a bear on their flag. Uh, but what's going to seal the deal for me is that I don't like the Bears. I like the Packers. This other guy played for the Packers, and uh, that may be divisive amongst our listeners. That's okay, because I'm diehard. I think we're at an impasse. Well, just like the Bears and the Packers were at noon on Sunday, there was an impasse. They were tied for most wins ever. 
and now the Packers hold it by one. So I think for redemption, I need to win this for Taverga. You can certainly try, but it still won't change the fact. Let's pull a random number between one and 10,000. I am going to pick the number 1069. So 1069, yeah. that's your pick? Yep. All right, I'm going to go with, I'm trying to trying to be fair here. Um, ah, looks like he was both, uh, Evan Moore was both the numbers 82 and 89. So I'm going to go with 8,289. Okay, a randomly selected number using the power of the internet is... happens again 9,714 let's go go pack go and go Evan James Moore into the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything congratulations yeah I can't tell you how much uh joy that brings to my heart although i'm pretty sure you know but things come around they have a way of evening out over time and i'm sure that you will get your day to gloat as will the contestants in our next round one of them at least round eight i say would you by chance have any round eight round eight round eight is going to be a lesson in the fact that words have meaning that changes over time we have Gay World Amusement Park, which is not what you think it is, against Live at the Ryman, the Brothers Osborne album. Well, both sound like wonderful good times. Let's see which one of these is going to make us happy enough to move them on to the next round. We've got Gay World Amusement Park, uh, formerly known as Happy World, and it's one of the famous trio of world amusement parks in Singapore facing off against Live at the Ryman, a live album by American country music duo Brothers Osborne. Gay World Amusement Park, founded in the 1930s as an amusement park with hustling and bustling nightlife during the 30s and 60s, the amusement parks were especially popular among Singaporeans as it was the locals' only form of entertainment for TV or shopping malls. It was an all-in-one complex that offered visitors a wide range of entertainment, from films to shopping and games. However, its popularity began to dip in the 1970s, and is eventually demolished in 2000 to make way for homes. Yes, uh, but let's go back to the beginning here. Let's talk about the opening ceremony. On the 6th of May, 1937, Happy World, as it was known then, celebrated its opening with a grand affair, with over 1,000 guests drinking over 100 gallons of champagne. Additionally, tea was served to the guests in the cabaret, as well as up to 100 tables set up in the inside the main entrance gates of the park. Now, only several stalls, the cabaret and the happy cinema, had completed construction at this time, but guests were given a performance at the cabaret by Miss Maudrine Yap prior to the opening of the dance floor. Now, during the period leading to World War II, Happy World began to host fundraising events to support China in its war relief efforts. The Singapore Overseas Chinese Relief Fund Committee, at the time headed by the businessman and philanthropist Tan Ka Ki organized frequent performances at Happy World to gather funds for China. In May of 1939, Tan addressed a crowd of over 10,000 in an event to raise funds for the war relief efforts. During this period, another form of entertainment was introduced in Happy World. Then, Japanese airways were rampant. Oh, air raids, that sounds terrible. I totally forget that China was involved in World War One. Uh... Yeah, actually, I don't know. I guess I, I haven't really thought about that since probably history class. But uh, there seems to be a lot of questionable things that took place here, including um, looks like prostitution, uh, looks like gambling, looks like all of this resulted in, compounded by the wars, uh, in ultimate fallen popularity of not only gay world but the other worlds uh, associated with it 
Yeah, don't forget the frequent fires in the 60s. That's never good when things just frequently light on fire. That's generally mm. a bad thing. Yes, um, but you know what may or may not be a bad thing because we haven't learned about it? I'm guessing it's probably at least a pretty decent thing. It's our other contestant, Live at the Ryman, the live album by the Brothers Osborne released in October of 2019 via EMI Records, and it contained 12 tracks of music. It was the duo's third album release and the first live effort compiled from a season of uh, from a series of concerts held in Nashville in Tennessee. Brothers Osborne performed three concerts in 2009 at the Ryman Auditorium there in Nashville. From these shows, a handful of their performances were included to compile live at the Ryman. The album contained a total of 12 tracks. These included live versions of their country hits, such as Stay a Little Longer and It Ain't My Fault. The album also includes a handful of live cuts originally found on their 2018 album, Port St. Joe. It was the duo's first live album in their career, and one of several albums recorded at the Ryman Auditorium. In a 2019 interview, John Osborne, he uh, is one of the Osbournes of the duo, he spoke about his feelings recording the live project, saying, to play this piece one night is a gift and an accomplishment that everyone should remember but the fact that we did it three i can't even wrap my mind around it he was he blew his own mind rob yeah and apparently critics liked them as well one critic from rolling stone described the duo's sound on the record to evoke progressive country styles and praised how they were able to reshape several of their former recordings to sound different than the originals he quoted himself oh, i'll quote him i guess he quoted himself as saying it but i'll quote him it's hard to imagine another country group in the present with daring or skill enough to pull it off so successfully. So it sounds like they're good. It does sound like that, but you'd have to listen to the album to really know. Let's take a look at what constitutes the album. Starts with a couple of tracks, including Drank Like Hank, Shoot Me Straight, and I Don't Remember Me. Uh, going on to Weed, Whiskey, and Willie. Look, both of these contestants are sounding like uh, they definitely... We're leaning on the uh, having a good time. Yeah, it definitely sounds like that's the case. But one of these is still around and one of them has been demolished. Not in a fun way, in a it doesn't exist anymore way. Mm, yes, and frequent fires will definitely help that to be the case. Do we have any evidence that uh, these Osborne brothers ever started any fires? Just in the ears of their listeners, which I think is what they're going for. Uh, well, in that case, I think, yes, uh, I'll concur with you. And we can move on this beautiful live album consisting of compilations of three different performances on to the performance, which is round two of The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Another musical contestant. Yeah, this has been just a, a wonderfully, you know, a sonically successful podcast. And that's really what you want out of a podcast. And if you concur with us that that's what this has been, please don't forget that you can like, rate, comment, and subscribe on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you do it on all of them, then you'll be sure to not miss a single episode that we send out every single day. We've got full-length episodes just like this on Tuesday and Thursday. And we have our scouting report on every single other day of the week but today being the day that it be and the time of now being the time that it be let us move on to the round that we find ourselves upon round nine it's about time round nine round nine in round nine, we have Rapchick against Bulbophyllum Macalotum. Okay, both of these, just at a glance, uh, seeming to be awesome. Not going to lie to you, listeners, we've got two short articles coming up at you, so we're going to have to come up with some great reasons and justifications for both of them, and we're going to attempt to do so presently. Rapchick is, of course, the Indian burrito fast food chain founded by Mahesh Rakar. 
They opened their first location in Birmingham City Center in June of 2012 and now have multiple locations from London to Birmingham to Edinburgh. Indian burritos, is that like like an Indian-themed burrito or are Indian burritos their own thing? Ooh, where was the nation that we had burritos from earlier as well? Let's see no, here. No, it was, it was the, the rice thing, sort of like yeah. a burrito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming back. Oh, holy cow. We've just got, you know, reiterations of iterations. This has just been a fortuitous event. I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I have. But we're not quite done yet. For Rapchick was one of 13 businesses that made it through final round of the Institute of Asian Businesses Annual Business Awards in 2013. And Mahesh Raker was shortlisted for Business Person of the Year. That was the founder of this Rapchick, the Indian fast food burrito chain. I mean, a curry burrito sounds kind of great. Yeah, burritos in general sound kind of great. But we have to be fair to our other competitor, Bulbophyllum maculatum, the species of orchid in the genus Bulbophyllum. Ooh, but orchids are, as you know, as I, I think you've you've said that you say this all the time, uh, that orchids are the burrito of the flower family i yeah. hear you say that almost daily well yeah i say and i ask you i say it all like the time. why why everyone yeah. everyone knows why because orchids only open once a year and you should almost never open a burrito that's true because if you were going to open your burrito then you should have probably just ordered nachos yeah what are you doing don't unwrap your burrito they've wrapped it for you everything is contained it's it's got its own wrapper what are you doing yeah, although just like every poorly eaten burrito, every bulb of an orchid must open eventually and, you know, reach up and out to bloom into what it will ultimately become upon flowering, uh, only to create more orchids. Now, the thing about a burrito is once you eat it, it's gone. But, uh, you know, plant life, if you just let it, you know, you let it do its thing, it's just going to make more plants. Yeah, plants will continue to make more plants. That is the circle of life. Disney, please do not sue. All I said was three words. Now, if I had to pick which one of these, I'm so curious about an Indian burrito. Yeah, me too. And honestly, I really haven't had dinner tonight, so like that's kind of striking me pretty deep. Now, could you integrate orchids into an Indian burrito? Like a, a floral essence, uh, perhaps? Would that be tasty? I, I I bet it would be. It sounds great. Okay. Well, that hasn't happened yet. But what also hasn't happened yet is that we are going to be moving on, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rap Chick, the Indian Burrito Company, to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Well, there you have it. We've settled some of life's greatest questions, like, is that a burrito? Is that ska band really a fish? And did you just waste an hour learning about things on Wikipedia you could have looked up on your own? Absolutely you did. But we hope that that time was well spent for... It's gone now. You can't get it back. <laughs> so if you'd like to re... Uh, you know... Hopefully not waste an hour, but spend an hour with us learning, living, and loving. Don't forget you can do so... In full-length version, every Tuesday and Thursday, we've got our scouting reports every other day of the week coming at you. Please like, subscribe, tell your friends that your favorite podcast in the world of burritos and fish is... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything.